So four years ago, I gave birth to my first child. Now, I had all kinds of ideas about how this would go, as one does, and I thought I was prepared, but it turns out it's pretty hard to prepare for one of the most intense and rapid physical changes one bodies can undergo. As I've been studying and preparing for this message and for this series on change, I just keep coming back to my learnings and my experience giving birth. Don't worry, I'll spare you the details, but I do want to take you back four years ago for just a moment. Now, some of you may know, especially those of you from my student ministry days here, my love for things like essential oils and twinkle lights and all the vibes. Well, you can imagine this was a very big part of my preparation and vision for giving birth. I had prepared like a whole scene in my mind and in my bag with, to help with the labor. I have essential oils. I have a playlist. I have twinkle lights. I have popsicles and coconut water and snacks. But several hours into labor and a hospital transfer later after intending to give birth at the local birth center, none of what I planned or expected happened. It was hard. And I found myself in a battle with myself for hours. I labored in total for just about 24 hours, and my contractions were overlapping for most of that time, so it was absolutely exhausting work. It was around midnight after having gone into labor early that morning that I totally reached my limits, and I'm stuck at what they call eight centimeters, and I need to get to 10. So close, but I could not do it anymore. So with the counsel of my midwife and some intervention, it gave me the chance to rest and get enough energy to push, which took about two hours. Our daughter Lake was born at 6 a.m. that next morning. Here's a picture just literally moments after she was born, before we even knew that she was a girl. And for anyone who's experienced this or bore witness to the birth of a human being, you know what an incredible and awe-inspiring moment this is, whatever the journey was to get you there. I also want to acknowledge that it can be a devastating moment or reminder, even as I share this story for some. How we come into the world reminds us just how out of control we are in beautiful and absolutely devastating ways. Well, after that experience, I became truly captivated with how it is that life comes into this world, but also with the ability of the human body and its biological wiring for change, from how a baby develops into a toddler and a child and an adolescent, and how the body giving birth to that life knows what it needs to do, is prepared for the changes it needs to make. Well, the truth is, I find myself reflecting also an awful lot these days on the birth process because, well, we are expecting our third child in January. Here's a picture of our first ultrasound several weeks back. And we are simultaneously thrilled and, well, a little crazed at the thought. But before getting to what it will be like to have three, I really find myself here in this third pregnancy consuming endless content about pregnancy and birth. For my second child, I had a C-section because my squirmy little boy was breached at the very last minute. And even though that was an even more different experience than I expected, I was so grateful to have a healthy baby boy, Coda, that was born back in June of 2021. 
But given these experiences, I'm all the more mentally preparing myself for labor, knowing I'd like to give birth naturally, despite my previous C-section. And as I've done that, I've learned a whole lot more about what the body is actually doing in labor. As I've listened to podcasts endlessly about birth stories and have been consuming books about various labor methods, I've realized just how important it is to let go. For my first labor, I was afraid of the pain that came with the changes that my body was trying to make. I didn't know that at the time, but in reflecting, I've realized that. And I was bracing against the changes my body was trying to undergo. My body knew what it needed to do, but my head was resisting. I was scared. But as I'm learning, it's actually when you let go and allow the body to do what it needs to do, that labor can best progress and new life can come as a result. Now, certainly it isn't always that way, the way labor goes. And thank God that we have medical advancements these days to help when things don't go as planned. But this all got me thinking about how new things come to be and the fight within us to want and yet resist the new Because the journey to get there can be really hard. It can be painful. It can be a labor. But it can also be productive. And it's the path to new life. And it can help, I think, to have the right expectations for what's happening when the changes are upon us. Last week, we began a new series called Up in the Air. And we're calling it that because the changes that we face tend to put us in a position of feeling like we're totally disrupted and unplanted in transition in midair, a place where we don't feel like we have much control. Like those split seconds when a trapeze artist jumps from one bar to the next. Some of us might be on a bar or maybe in midair right now, in the middle of or knowing a leap is coming, whether we're ready or not, which may or may not be of our choosing. A new school year, a new job, a new baby, a move, a relationship change, a job loss, the loss of a loved one. Some of us might not be in a change, but may be sensing it's time to make a change. But what that change is might be a little bit of a mystery, might be unknown. But the unknown can often keep us from pursuing what that stirring may mean. For some, maybe the change doesn't feel like it needs to be an external change, but more internal. You may just be dissatisfied with who you've become as a friend, as a parent, as a spouse, as a roommate. So as we began to ask last week, why is it that change is so constant and so difficult? And how can we navigate change in a way that is actually good for us? And what does God expect from us in times of change? And what can we expect from God? How can we learn to let go, to make room for a change to happen? And how do we know when to let go? Last week, Pastor Brian introduced the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, which means teacher or preacher. And the book opens and closes with another voice that sets up and gives the final word to what the teacher has to say. But the majority of the book is the teacher sharing his journey of finding meaning in life. 
Now, this book, as we began to see last week, is not meant to be an apologetic for the existence of God. It's pressing the question, does God matter? And it's because of the troubling observations the teacher has about life and about change that he goes on this quest. Brian touched on this opening chapter last week, but we're going to spend some more time here in Ecclesiastes 1 today. So listen to Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 through 2. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Okay, before you jump in your mind to interpret or make sense of what the teacher is talking about here, just take a moment to take these words in at face value. Do you hear the angst in the teacher's voice? The desperation, the exhaustion? I wonder if parts of your journey has led you to moments like this, throwing your hands up and saying, it's all meaningless. Those moments when we feel maybe at our lowest and most vulnerable can be so hard. But maybe, instead of that being a moment of weakness, could it be a moment of honest insight? An insight that is key to moving through change. Let me show you what I mean. The translation of the word meaningless here is a helpful translation, but the word is a little bit more robust than that. It's the Hebrew word Hevel. So basically saying, Hevel, Hevel, says the teacher, utter Hevel. Everything is Hevel. So meaningless is how lots of our Bibles translate it, or some say vanity, is how we typically interpret Hevel. And that's kind of a way that we make sense of it in a more figurative way that the teacher is using it. But the more literal translation of the word is vapor or an evaporated cloud, meaning it's here one minute and gone the next, like vapor or smoke. When it's there, you can perceive it, but it soon disappears. And the moment you try to grab onto it, it disperses. It can't be held or contained as you might suspect. So in the 12 chapters, the teacher will use this word hevel or vapor 38 times to describe what he has learned and observed about the nature of life. And he looks at a variety of realities in life here in these following chapters that lead him all to the same conclusion. He says in verse 13 and 14 in this same chapter one, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And this phrase, chasing after the wind, is echoed throughout as well. It turns out Kansas' song, Dust in the Wind, isn't just a poetic or dark observation about life. It's a biblical observation about life. Same old song, the song says. Ecclesiastes 1.10, is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. Same old song. Just a drop of water in an endless sea. Ecclesiastes 3.14, 
I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor taken from it. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see, says the song. Now don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. Ecclesiastes 1, 3 through 4. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. It slips away and all your money won't buy another minute, the song says. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Ecclesiastes 3.20. All go to the same place. All come from dust. And to dust all return. This song echoes the insights of the teacher in Ecclesiastes and gives a pretty helpful summary, actually. No matter what we do, time marches on. Death comes to us all. Our striving and gains don't change that. No matter what we do, we cannot avoid these realities. There are no guarantees under the sun. And this, the author of Ecclesiastes says, is hevel. Work or career, it's hevel. You toil as hard as you want, but your work won't necessarily last and it won't be passed on necessarily to be continued. Think you can do something new? It's been done. Nothing new under the sun. Hevel, meaningless, unfair. Accumulate wealth or legacy? Think that will bypass these realities? Nope, hevel. Okay, so what about forgetting it all and just pursuing pleasure? Yep, the teacher tries that too. In Ecclesiastes 2, verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Unpredictable, unstable, no guarantees. Okay, so what about being wise, pursuing life with wisdom, with a good head on, like the book of Proverbs suggests? The teacher pursues that too. Ecclesiastes 2.15. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So the teacher observes the same fate for both the wise and the fool. Even the pursuit of good thing like wisdom doesn't guarantee an outcome. And it doesn't lead to a different place in the end leads to death. This is hevo, the teacher says. Now, <clears throat> in the context of a church, amongst many who, are, who consider themselves believers or people of faith, you may bristle at this a little bit. 
But before we jump to some kind of figurative interpretation of this, think for a second about your lived experience. Life, as the teacher says, cannot be controlled, meaning we can pursue all sorts of ways to achieve certain outcomes, but ultimately it won't give us what we want or expect. It can't be as reliable as we think it might be. It doesn't last. It's here one moment, gone the next. It's hevel. If you've ever had a moment of faith crisis or frustration or anger about God not delivering on something we might expect, God, I did all the right things. Why is this happening? You've known the hevel of life. We have certain expectations about how things in our life are supposed to go. Expectations can hardly be avoided. But as religious or spiritual people, sometimes these expectations can show up in the form of what one pastor calls the myth of religious fulfillment, which he describes as the expectation that God's role in our life is to make our life better, which usually translates to deliver on the expectations I have for happiness and fulfillment. If we do X, my life will look like Y. We can try and live certain ways, pursue certain things, good things, but even this doesn't guarantee anything. The book of Job explores this painful reality, which brings us to change. If this is how life works, change is less about the universe or even God behaving in a way that is an anomaly or out of character. Change often reveals to us how our expectations are not in line with the way life works, and even sometimes the way God works. Now, there are expectations we have that are in line with the Creator's intentions, expectations of justice and of love, and we are right to be devastated when we and others fall short. But in this imperfect world, how does God and meaning in life work? What should we expect? And how might this all help us move through change? I want to look at one more passage at the end of chapter two in Ecclesiastes. And it's the first of four proverbs of sorts that the teacher mentions, which all take the form, there is nothing better than. So it signaled to us as the reader that amidst the litany of all the things that are hevel, unreliable, here is a reliable truth. There is nothing better for mortals than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and heaping, only to give to one who pleases God. This is also vanity and a chasing after wind. This is our first clue as to how the teacher is interpreting his insights about life and about how might one respond in faith to the meaninglessness of life. First, in verse 24, life is to be enjoyed. To eat and drink signifies contentment. Sitting down for this meal, for this drink, in this moment, this daily provision, this daily bread. Second, verse 25, life is intended and enjoyed as a gift from God, the giver. 
The food and drink and relationship that nourishes us this day is a gift from God. And we enjoy these things in a different kind of way when we, when we see them as gift. Third, in verse 23, says the one who pleases God, meaning the one who sees life as a gift from God. Speaking, in other words, to one's worldview, not one's morality. This person receives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. Wisdom to navigate the ups and downs of life. Knowledge of how life works, not from the accumulation of facts, but from experience. And joy, contentment in the gifts of life. This food, this drink, this relationship, for example. But the sinner, meaning the person who is not amoral, but the person who cannot see what is given in life as a gift, but instead perceives that she must accumulate and gather for herself in order to find meaning or contentment. This person will experience more devastatingly the vapor, the dust that is these things. But the person who trusts the giver of the gift, the daily provision of God, Instead of the one who responds out of fear and reliance on one's own efforts or control, this is the key to navigating life, to facing change. So the person who lets go of the need to control, to accumulate, the person who lets go of their own partially viewed expectations, this person will begin to have knowledge, wisdom, and joy. So it's not that all of life is meaningless. It's that its meaning cannot be contained. Its meaning is expansive. It's ever evolving. And it's much bigger than we can see. Its meaning cannot be controlled. Meaning these things that are gifts in our life aren't meant to be for our own gain or our own security. Its meaning cannot be hoarded, can't be owned or bought or kept forever. The meaning of life is not in anything or life circumstance, good or bad. It is in something bigger than that. It's in the moment-to-moment relationship with the giver of all these things as we experience the gifts. And this truth is not meant to leave us in dismay. It's meant to free us. Let's think for a moment about one of the most iconic let-it-go moments in recent history. I'm talking, of course, about Queen Elsa in Frozen. Now, for those who haven't seen it or who don't have someone in your life whose favorite color is Elsa blue, let me give you a rundown. Queen Elsa is born with magical powers. Growing up, she doesn't understand how to control or use her powers, especially when she feels elevated emotions like fear or anger. These powers end up hurting her younger sister at a young age because she doesn't know how to use them yet. And in turn, for years, she locks herself up and keeps herself sequestered off from those she loves and shutting herself off from her emotions. It works until her coronation when her feelings of protection for her sister, Anna, cause her emotions to stir up once again, and of course her powers, revealing in front of everyone what she's been hiding, that she has powers, but they don't seem to be for good. They seem to be for for evil devastated and afraid, Elsa leaves the castle and sets out for the snowy wilderness. And in a moment, the world that she had built all these years comes crashing down. 
and feeling that she's lost everything. This is what she sings. The wind is howling like the swirling storm inside. Couldn't keep it in. Heaven knows I tried. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. Well, now they know. Let it go. Let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Let it go. Let it go. Her lyrics get at something about why change is so hard. It's because we feel like we're losing a part of who we are, a part of what we have built, losing the sense of control that we have for the reality that we know. The wind is howling like the swirling storm inside, she says. She feels in chaos, entering a new season of life where she doesn't have control. Now, the control that Elsa had was also her prison. And so letting go in this moment is both terrifying and hard, but it's also exhilarating. If you've seen the movie, you know there's more hard ahead for Elsa. And she'll struggle with returning to her ways of isolating and controlling. But this is a critical, no-turning-back kind of moment for her. And she will ultimately learn that the meaning of life is not in her ability to hold on, but in her ability to let go. Her posture, even at the beginning of this song, is clenched and holding on. And by the end of the song, she is more expanded and open and free. And that sets her on a journey of transformation. An external change that was out of her control became an opportunity for her to change on the inside. Something new springs forth for her. And as she learns to let go, she learns to let joy and love and trust in. And she returns to Arendelle by the end of the movie completely different than before. She has a relationship now with her sister Anna and her other friends like Olaf and Kristoff and Sven. Life is so much richer as a result of her letting go and learning to trust instead of control. And it's interesting, actually, that the second movie opens early on with a song about change, how seasons change and the things around us change. But the relationships we hold dear this day sustain us. Ecclesiastes is saying this, too. And that relationship is one rooted in God, the creator of all things, which in this world, all will pass away, but in the next will be eternal. There is a similar iconic story of letting go like this in scripture, a crossing the threshold into something new, but terrifying. Last week, we talked about the change the Israelite people experienced and the loss of Moses as their leader and embrace of Joshua. Well, it's earlier in their story that they experience another change and a pretty epic one from slavery to freedom as they cross the Red Sea. This is like the OG Disney let it go moment if there ever was one. But similar to Elsa, the journey to really learn to let go is not easy. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 1 picks up well into their time in the wilderness now. They're in this in-between space. And here's what it says. That night, all the members of the community raised their voice and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? 
Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Letting go is not easy because it can often lead us to the wilderness between two realities in transition in a place that is unfamiliar and uncomfortable and maybe even a little dangerous. But what if that's the place that needs to be crossed through to get to something new? A few verses later, we hear Moses and Aaron and other leaders reply to them, which is essentially an emotional, visceral cry declaring that the promised land is exceedingly good. And if they are to trust God, they need not be afraid because the Lord is with them. Where do you feel afraid? these days? Where are you holding on to control? Where are you tempted to turn back to what is familiar because it feels safer, but it is actually a place of enslavement? Well, as we close, I want to give you an opportunity to listen to a parable. It's a modern day parable about a trapeze. It's written by the late author Dan and Perry from his book, Warriors of the Heart. And as you listen and consider the metaphor, listen for God's invitation and promise to you and exactly the thing you are fearing or holding onto or are wanting to change but don't know where to start. Begin imagining what it would look like to choose trust over fear. Sometimes I feel that my life is a series of trapeze swings. I'm either hanging on to a trapeze bar, swinging along, or for a few moments in my life, I'm hurtling across space in between trapeze bars. Most of the time, I, I spend life hanging on for dear life to one of my trapeze bar over the moment. It, it carries me along at a certain steady rate of swing. And, and I have to, this feeling that I'm in control of my life. I know most of the right questions and even some of the answers. But every once in a while, as I'm merrily or not so merrily swinging along, I look out ahead of me and into the distance. And what do I see? I see another trapeze bar swinging towards me. It's empty. And I know that in that place in me that knows that this new trapeze bar has my name on it. It, it, it's my next step, my growth, my aliveness coming to get me. In my heart of hearts, I know that for me to grow, I I must release my grip on this present well-known bar and move to the next one. Each time it happens to me, I, I hope No, I I pray that I I won't have to let go of that bar, my old bar, completely before I grab onto the new one. But in my knowing place, I, I know that I must totally release my grasp on my old bar. And for some moment in time, I must hurtle across space before I can grab onto the new bar. Each time I'm filled with terror. It doesn't matter that in all my previous hurdles across the void of unknowing, I've always made it. I am each time 
afraid that I will miss, that I will be crushed on the unseen rocks at the bottom chasm between the bars. I do it anyway. And perhaps this is the essence of what the mystics call the faith experience. No guarantees, no net, no insurance policy. But you do it anyway. Because somehow, to keep hanging on to that old bar, it's no longer on the list of alternatives. So for an eternity that can last a microsecond or, or, or a thousand lifetimes, I soar across that dark void of the, the past is gone, the future is not yet here. It's called transition. I've come to believe that, that this transition is the only place where real change occurs. I mean, real change. Not the, the pseudo-change that, that only lasts until the next time my old buttons get punched. And I've, I've noticed that uh, in our culture, this transition zone is, is looked upon as a no thing. A, a no place between spaces, between places. Sure, the, the old trapeze bar was real. And that new one coming towards me, I, well, I hope that's real too, but... But the void, in between, is that just a, a scary, confusing, disorienting nowhere that they must be gotten through as fast and as unconsciously as possible? No, but what a waste. It's an opportunity. I mean, I have a sneaking suspicion that the transition zone is the only real thing, and the bars are illusions that we dream up to avoid the void of the real change, the real growth that occurs for us. Yeah, whether or not my hunch is true, it remains that, that the transition zone in our lives, it, it, they're incredibly rich places. They should be honored, even savored. Yes, even with all the pain and fear and feelings of being out of control that can, but not necessarily, accompany transitions, they, they're still the most alive, the most growth-filled, passionate, and expansive moments in our lives. We change by letting go. We let go by practicing trust over fear. We make room for knowledge and wisdom and joy in our life when we let go, when we practice trust over fear. This parable we just heard echoes the truth of Ecclesiastes. The meaning isn't in the things, it's in the thing in between the thing. The reliance on the God who is the giver, creator, changer, provider, sustainer, and the promised land that is promised to us might be seen only in part in the gifts we receive, but it's promised to us in full in the new creation. That is the promised trajectory of creation, made known and made real in the life, mission, and resurrection of Jesus. So where are you holding on to control? 
Imagine yourself letting go and choosing trust instead of fear. As I close in prayer, I invite you to meditate for a moment on that question. So let's pray. Triune God, Father, Spirit, and Son, gently reveal to us something in our life, something that we are holding on to, that we are afraid to let go of, that we are trying to control, that we are expecting a certain outcome from. I bring that to mind right now without second guessing or searching for the right thing in this moment or judging the thing. What is it? Where am I holding on to control? I imagine myself clenching my fist around it. Maybe I physically hold my hands in a fist right now to feel and represent in my body that control. With my hand still clenched, I allow myself to imagine your hands now wrapped around mine. I imagine you with me right now, not judging the fear or control or grief that I hold, but with me in it. And as I'm ready, I embody the trust you invite me to practice by slowly unclenching my fist so that it is finally an open palm facing up. And as I do that, I feel the release in my whole body as even for this moment, I release what's clenched and feel your trusting, loving presence with me. Help me to take this moment, this feeling into my day and may it be a seed of beginning to practice trust over fear. Amen.